Well, let's, uh, let's look at Matthew chapter 1. If you've got a Bible with you, I'm going to invite you to find Matthew chapter 1. As we get started in this Advent series that we're calling Oddballs and Outsiders. Oddballs and Outsiders. And today we're talking about some questionable characters. In your bulletin, it probably says questionable women, but it's really about questionable characters. So, um, We've already talked a little bit about what Advent means, so uh, we know where we're going with this. But Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start right at verse 1. This chapter begins, or this book begins with a list of names. Now, if you're a writer, this is probably not the best way to grip the attention of your reading audience. Right? We look and we say, oh, Great. Another list of unpronounceable Bible names. Thanks a lot. But it mattered to Matthew's audience. And we want to keep in mind that all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed. And, a, 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 you know, every part matters. And a, a Christian is one who believes and abides by the words of this book. The Bible, so we can safely assume that even name lists, lists of names, have something to teach us. Can you, um, if you found Matthew chapter one, I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Matthew one, one, and yes, I'm really going to read this list. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David. And of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Remember, Jacob is later called Israel. Those twelve sons, Judah being one of them, are the sons of Israel. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehoiakim. And his brothers, born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiakim was the father of Sheltiel. Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Atzor. Atzor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eliezer. Eliezer was the father of Matan. Matan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is the Lord's word. Let's be seated. Well, these names are Jesus' family tree. 
Matthew structured it, as you could see, to show three periods of time, 14 generations each. Not all the names in the family are included, and the literary style allows for that kind of writing. The Greek words translated father of is sometimes translated begat. It's a genesin, which, which can mean something like legal ancestor or legal father, not necessarily or exclusively biological father. So it can skip generations without losing integrity. My dad's name is Henry, but my grandfather's name is David, but my great-grandfather's name is Philip. So it's, it's okay for me to say I'm the son of Philip Weeb, even though that's three generations removed. That's an acceptable terminology, or Weeby, if we lived here, if they had lived here. Um, what the list does do is establish Jesus as a real person in real time in the line of David in keeping with prophecy. It's another proof of the reliability of scripture, right? Because the readers of the gospel, the readers of this book, whoever's the first author would be able to verify, hey, wait a second. They would know whether or not that's true. Not to mention if you're creating a, 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 you know, a genealogical record for a false story, you wouldn't put a bunch of sinners in it. You wouldn't make it look so questionable. After all, the list includes a number of dubious characters. Abraham and Isaac weren't always truthful. Jacob was a trickster. Judah sold his brother into slavery and slept with his own daughter-in-law. David had his friend Uriah killed after getting his wife pregnant. Solomon abandoned God. Rehoboam was a terrible king, as were Jotham, Ahaz, Manasseh, Ammon, and Jehoiakim. There, there are some good ones in this list, too, but Matthew made no attempt to create a spotless family line for Jesus. And what's especially remarkable is that the list includes women. Genealogies are typically tracked by fathers and sons, fathers and sons, fathers and sons, but there's four women named in this list at least three of whom are as dubious as some of the men. So I'm not picking on the women this morning or their character. It's just remarkable that they're in this list. So it's that much more significant that they're here and we want to talk about them. So I'm going to briefly remind you of their stories. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, there's Ruth, and there's Uriah's wife, who's also, we actually know her name to be Bathsheba. Let me see if I can do this quickly. Let's talk about Tamar. You had um, Jacob, who became Israel. He had 12 sons. And one of those sons was a guy named Judah. Judah found a wife outside of his own clan, traveled a ways to, to marry. And Judah and his wife had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Poor guy, but it's okay. Well, Judah found a wife for his oldest son, Ur. But Ur was a wicked man and he died before she could have any children. So now she's a widow and childless, and this is a problem. But custom said that the next son was to also marry her and provide offspring for her so that she would be not unsupported. But the second son, Onan, was also a wicked man, and he died before leaving her any children. Judah comes to Tamar and says, well, listen, I have one more son, but he's a little too young for you right now. So hang on, go live with your father. And when the time is right, when he's old enough, you can marry Sheila and have children. But Judah's thinking, that woman's bad news. I lost two sons to her already. There's no way I'm giving her my third one. And she figures this out over time. The years go by and, and she is no husband. So she has a plan. She's a strategy. She needs to find a way 
to provide for herself and certainly to keep Judah to his word. So it's sheep shearing time and she hears that, that Judah's going to be in the village for that. And so she dresses as a prostitute, veil and all. And she sits at the city gate and Judah comes. And it just so happens that Judah's wife has recently passed away. He's widowed and he's alone and he's lonely. And the Bible says in Genesis, it's not good for man to be alone. And sure enough, he sees this woman and as he gives in to his passion and his lust and he takes her and he sleeps with her. And she becomes pregnant. And she's pregnant and he hears about it. He says, my daughter-in-law is pregnant. You need to kill that woman. Burn her alive. And as she's being led out to be killed, she says, no problem. But the man who's responsible for this owns these items, a couple of items that she'd hung on to from Judah. And he's caught, he's busted, and he has to say, she's more righteous than I, for I would not give her the son that she was to have. And she gives birth to these, these twins, and the older of whom is Perez. Interestingly, he's older only because he stuck his hand out first. They tied a ribbon around it. He pulled it back in. The other one was born, but he still got called the firstborn. <laughs> Perez means breaks out. He who breaks out. So all you nurses who work in obstetrics understand all that. Let's talk about Rahab. Rahab in the Bible is called a harlot. What we would call a prostitute. Possibly a madam. Rahab lived in this ancient city of Jericho. Jericho was the first major obstacle that Israel faced to taking their promised land. They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years under the direction of Moses. Moses died. Now led by Joshua, they're about to enter the land. And Joshua sees the city of Jericho. And so he sends a couple of spies into the city. And the spies go in and they look around. And they, they spend the night at the home, they check into the home of Rahab the harlot. Now, some have argued, well, that term can also mean guest housekeeper or innkeeper, possibly, but both the Old and the New Testament call her a harlot. At, at best, it was perhaps a guest house that provided other services of companionship for male travelers. The point is, that's where they are. Soldiers come to her door and they bang on the door. We know you have two spies in there. Bring them out to us. And she says, oh, they were here, but they left before the city gates closed for the night. You better hurry if you're going to catch up to them. Quick. And so off they go. But she hid them in her house. And she goes to them and cuts a deal. She says, I saved your life. Now, here's what you can do for me. We all know that our city is going to fall to you Israelites. So what I'm asking is that you preserve the life of me and my family. My father, my mother, and my brothers and sisters. When you come, save our lives. And so they work out a signal, and that's exactly what they do. And Hebrews chapter 11 even recognizes Rahab the harlot as a woman of faith. She's mentioned right alongside all the great names of the Bible. Well, then you've got Ruth. Ruth, later on, Ruth was from the land of Moab, which is to the east of Israel, what today would be Jordan. 
There was a, we need to go back one generation. There was a woman named Naomi, and she was married to a man named Elimelech. And they lived in Israel, and there was a famine, and they were in, in dire need. And so they said, we, 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 we've got to move and find a place where we can find some work and, and grow some crops. And so they go to Moab, along with their sons, Malon and Killian. And as they're there, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow. But no problem, she's got two sons that can support her. She gets those two sons married off, but both of those boys also die. And now you've got Naomi the widow and two widowed daughters-in-law. What are they going to do? This is desperate. Well, they hear that things are better back in the land of Israel. So Naomi says, I'm going back home. You girls stay here. Find new husbands. Sort it out. I'm just going to be a burden to you. You Start a new life here in your homeland. I'm going back to Israel. But the one daughter-in-law, Ruth, says, no, I'm going with you. Naomi, your people are my people. Your God is my God. I am not letting you go unless I go with you. And so they go together back to Israel. But they're in poverty. They're, these are desperate times, and the only way they can feed themselves is what's, what's, what's called gleaning, where you could, you could go into the, the harvest fields after the harvesters have gone through, and you pick up the scrubs and scraps along the edges and things that have been dropped behind. And, there, and Ruth goes as a gleaner, and it just so happens that she goes to this field owned by a man named Boaz. And as she's there, Boaz notices the girl. Men notice the girl. And he says, and who's that in my field? And they say, oh, that's the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Well, the wheels start turning for Boaz. Because he's a guy, very slowly at first. But they do start to turn. And he, he communicates to her, look, you're safe in my field. Do all your gleaning here. And he tells his harvesters, Leave a little extra. Drop a few more stalks than you normally would. And so Naomi gleans there. and she, I mean, Ruth gleans there. And she goes home to Naomi and says, You won't believe what happened. I landed in this field and the guy's going to let me stay there. And it's working out really well. And Naomi says, Do you know who that is? That's one of our relatives. He's what's called a kinsman redeemer. He has an obligation to, to help us out. Oh. Well, the harvest continues, and finally, at the end of the harvest, it's harvest party time, and Naomi and Ruth hatch a plan. Naomi says, Ruth, here's what I want you to do tonight. Put on your nicest clothes, put on some lovely perfume, do your hair, and I want you to go to the harvest party. And at the end of the evening, after Boaz has had a little too much to drink, and he goes off to the piles of grain to sleep it off, I want you to go down and lay at his feet, Peel the blanket off his feet and wait to see what happens. Well, you know how that is. If you kick the blankets off in the night and it's cold, you wake up. Boaz wakes in the middle of the night and who's there but this young woman at his feet. This is highly compromising. This could be problematic for all involved. He says, who are you? And she says, I'm, I'm Ruth. I'm the daughter-in-law of Naomi. And he says, oh, I, I know who you are. He says, I will take care of this. Wait until tomorrow. Get some sleep. And we'll take care of this tomorrow. But before the light of day, they make sure that she's up and leaves so that no one will see them because they know it's really not appropriate. And she goes home. And sure enough, Boaz makes the arrangements to buy back 
the misappropriated land that had belonged to Naomi and Mary's roof. And from them, the family line of Jesus continues. One more. Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba, well Bathsheba was married to David's friend. David's friend Uriah. Uriah was in David's personal bodyguard detail. But when all the men had gone off to battle, David stayed home. And he's, he's going for a stroll on the roof of his palace. He spots a beautiful young woman taking a bath. And men do notice the girl. This time, not for good. And he also gives in to his lust and his passion. He has her brought to the palace. And timing is everything. She gets pregnant by David. Words given to David that she was pregnant. And he goes into a full-on panic. He has Uriah's friend brought back from the battlefield. He says, hey, give me a report how things are going. Okay, well, hey, while you're here, why don't you go spend the night with your wife? Well, he sleeps on the porch. And he's like, what's the matter with you? He's like, my, my fellow soldiers are out on the battlefield. And you want me to enjoy a relaxed night with my wife? There's no way I wouldn't do that to my comrades. So David says, well, fine. Come, come have a party with me tonight. David gets him drunk, tries to do it again. He still won't. Uriah is an honorable man, much more so than the king. So David is now full on panicking and he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a message for the commander, his commanding officer. And he says, have this guy killed in battle, which is exactly what happens. So David's committed adultery and he's, and he's committed murder. He takes Bathsheba now. Oh, Bathsheba's available. I'll just marry her. Has a child, but the child dies. But the next child is Solomon. And Solomon becomes the next king. Bathsheba's notable because she, and and as David was on his deathbed, she went to David and, and made him keep his promise that Solomon would be the king because Adonijah had usurped the throne. But she went to bat for what was right the rightful line, remarkably through her. I want you to notice that none of these women had anything like an ideal life. Don't let yourself ever believe that God waits until you have it all together before He can work through you. No perfect people are allowed. Tamar was twice widowed, no kids, a position of both grief and great shame in that time. When we met Rahab in Joshua chapters 2 and chapter 6, there's no mention of husband or children, but possibly she'd been with many men. Ruth, we're told, was a woman of noble character, but she also was widowed early with no children and poverty stricken. She lived with her mother-in-law, Naomi, far from her Moabite family. And Bathsheba, who I don't think was completely innocent, in this whole matter with David, was lonely as an army wife and possibly childless and then widowed because of David's great sin. So what do these women bring to the table? Loneliness, grief, disappointment, shame, betrayal, poverty. And if we're honest, we'd have to admit there are at least some of those things we have carried or do carry in our own heartaches. But each of them turned their terribly painful circumstances to their advantage. None of them sat and waited for something better to happen. They didn't let their past and their pain stop them. None were saying, well, I'll just sit and pray about it. 
They acted in faith and in courage. And I do have a caveat, a warning for you. And that's that not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. That is, not everything that happened in the Bible is prescribed for us to copy. Okay? So seduction and manipulation, for example, these are not recommended behaviors to accomplish the will of God. just want to get that out there. But maybe we can learn from what happened. I'm going to share three things with you. First, worth noting is that God loves to include the excluded. God loves to include the excluded. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth were Gentiles. Bathsheba was married to a Gentile. And that makes all of them outsiders to the Jewish culture. Outsiders, Gentiles. And yet God includes them in the very family line of Jesus. The Messiah. You know, when I mention the loneliness or disappointment of these women's lives, maybe you relate to that. You just ache inside. You feel so excluded. You've tried to fit in at work or with your family or your extended family or your in-laws or outlaws or you tried to fit in at school and you just, it isn't working. Maybe you've tried unsuccessfully to fit in here at Bethany Church, right? And so you withdraw. You feel like giving up. You think it's not worth it. But friend, God wants you in his story. He has a place for you in it. He loves you and he's with you in your loneliness. Press on. Or maybe you and I identify more with those who are the insiders, the ones who fit, who belong, who have the the right background, the right name. And the question for us is, will we, like God, include the excluded in our lives and in our homes and our church? Second, none of these women should have been in this list. Not one of them. Their presence here is not in the normal flow of how we think, expect things to transpire. And it tells me this, that God loves to do the unexpected. God loves to do the unexpected. If the story had gone the right way, right, Judah would have found a wife inside of his own clan, not married a Gentile, not lost his two sons, not impregnated his widowed foreign daughter-in-law Tamar. The, the Hebrew spies would not have been hiding in a brothel. And how did harlot Rahab even know to have faith in God? How did the Moabite Ruth end up with a Hebrew husband? That shouldn't have happened. And that resulted in her leaving her homeland to then meet Boaz and Bathsheba. Well, David had plenty of wives already and sons enough for his dynasty. And he certainly did not need to have an affair with the neighbor to extend his family line. It's like... It's like God just shoehorned these women into this family tree and into this story. And friends, you cannot make this stuff up. It's too crazy. Right. And maybe you're scratching your head at some of the twists and turns in your own life and in your own story. And you thought you made the right decision, but it turned out all wrong. You zigged when you should have zagged. You, 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 something terrible, really terrible happened to you. Maybe you were raped. Or maybe you did something terrible. You, you, you're shamed and embarrassed. Maybe, maybe you had an abortion or you convinced your girlfriend to have an abortion so many years ago. And what happened was, was all back then, but you just still live with all this regret and embarrassment and shame and you don't want to tell anybody. And you need to know that God's not lost you. He has not lost you. He loves to do the unexpected, the surprising, to work with the, the unlikely ones. He wants to fit you into his story. But I don't want to overlook the 
creative risks these women took. Tamar played a role to have a child, to basically snare her father-in-law. She could easily have been executed for that. Rahab risked her life to hide those spies with only a verbal promise of rescue. Ruth risked her reputation, her very clean, upstanding reputation, to get Boaz's attention. And like I mentioned, Bathsheba later in life put her life on the line to get David to keep his word and put Solomon on the throne of Israel. Essentially, they all violated the status quo for a greater cause. But the last thing I want to say is, is this, and maybe it's the most obvious point of the story, that the sin and brokenness of your past is no barrier to God. The sin and brokenness of your past is no barrier to God. But you need to bring it to Him. See, part of us reading the names of these four women, and the dubious men as well, but especially Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, is that we know what they did. We know what they did. It's exposed to us. We're part of it now. We're in on it. It's not pretty. But it's in that openness, in that exposure, that the shame and the condemnation of sin loses its power over us. We have the advantage of looking back over generations and say, well, those things happened, but here we can see now what came of it. Okay, we can see God was at work. We don't always have that luxury in the moment. We can't always see what God's doing right now. But I tell you, the sin and the brokenness of your past, whether it's things you've done or things done to you, that is no barrier to God. It's in openness that the shame and condemnation of sin loses its power. And if you've buried junk from your past or you're still burying present day garbage in the hopes that it just goes away, I'm telling you, it doesn't. Sin and shame thrive underground. Sin and shame thrive underground. And it's only the light that kills it. Bring your failures to the Lord by confessing it to someone. Expose it to the light. Watch as you begin to experience forgiveness and freedom. I, I had a friend a number of years ago said, I'm in real trouble with the IRS. They haven't caught me yet, but they will. I'm a Christian, but I feel like this has gone too far, and I, I, now I just feel like I have to live off the grid. And I said, you're a follower of Jesus. You start doing the right thing, and God will honor that. It began a very challenging process of digging back in time. But you know what? There was a level of relief and freedom and relaxation that came with saying, I'm finally going to do the right thing. So whatever area of your life it is, when you bring it into the light, let God begin to help you with that. Bring your failures to the Lord by confessing it to someone. Expose it. Find that forgiveness and that freedom. And it's not a barrier to what God has yet to accomplish in your life. Sin and brokenness is just not a barrier to God. Well, church, in these weeks uh, leading up to Christmas, including our Christmas Eve services, 4 o'clock and 5.30 on the 24th, we're going to keep coming back to oddballs and outsiders. We're going to keep seeing the surprising ways God worked to bring Jesus into the world. And it starts with this family tree today. And whatever your family tree looks like, that's not a problem either for your Heavenly Father. 
oh man, your tree might have some broken branches or crooked twigs or severed roots. It's not the end. It's okay. The women in this story honestly had a bleak outlook for their life before they took action and before God intervened for them. Start by bringing your junk to Him and surrender to His better way for your life. Because only God knows what God may yet do.